Adrian, how you doing? Well, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, our, our little podcast is now up on SoundCloud. It's up on Pandora. It's up on Spotify. It's on Google Play. It's on iTunes. It's not yet on iHeartRadio, though. Why is that? I don't know. Do you I think they just don't like us, or do yeah. they... Of course yeah. they like us. I mean, here... I love iHeartRadio. I love the app because you can, you know, it's got a ton of podcasts that you can find. It also got great music selection. And, you know, I feel like, you know, it's missing us. Yeah, it's I missing think it the electables. And to those of you who listen to iHeartRadio and have the app out there, please encourage them to put our podcast on it. And if you are working for iHeartRadio and you're listening to this, we hope you will strongly consider adding the Electables podcast to your repertoire of amazing content. So we have a special guest. We do. We have a very special guest. I am extremely excited to welcome Mignon Moore to the show. I mean, goodness, where do I even start, Mignon, with your political career? Um, You were an advisor to Jesse Jackson's 84 campaign. Um, You also worked for Michael Dukakis's campaign in 88. Um, You worked in the President uh, Clinton administration. You were his director of the Office of Public Liaison, which is a very, um, one of the most senior jobs in the West Wing. You've also been the CEO of the Democratic National Committee, which we're going to touch upon later in the show. Um, And then you and I have been in the trenches together, both on Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign and, of course, most recently on her 2016 presidential campaign. We, we jokingly called a group of you the Super Six on the campaign, which included you, Robbie Mook, our campaign manager, Jennifer Palmieri, our communications director, Jake Sullivan, um, the secretary's longtime senior uh, foreign policy advisor. Uh, and there were a couple more in that group as well. John Podesta, of course, our campaign chairman. So um, anyway, Mignon, I just want to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. I am delighted to be here. And by the way, I heart. I love Adrian and Doug. <laughs> That's right. And this is from Mignon Moore. That's right. Actually, you know, Mignon is one of the few people in this town who actually goes, by, who basically can go by one name. Everyone knows her by Mignon. Because or she, Minnie. Because she, her, her history and reputation and, and, uh, and record is things that are made of legends. And uh, I'm not just saying that because she's across from me, but uh, because I would say that if she wasn't. Uh, but she is someone who has been a trailblazer uh, and has advised, ev- you know, everyone. And it's a real honor to have have you on our show. I have one name, but I do not have Oprah's money. Which is sad, <laughs> very sad. Go on. She's also very good at quippy comebacks there on that. So, but you know, in Washington, you do, yeah, you do, but you don't. Yeah, none of us in this room have even close to Oprah's money, no. unfortunately. Um, Mignon, so I just want to get straight to it. You just returned from Selma with Secretary Clinton this weekend, where she received an award. Obviously, um, there was a whole group of people down there for the faith and politics. Um, uh, what, what do you call it? The the pilgrimage or mm-hmm. you know whatnot. Tell us about this past weekend. How was it? Um, did it feel you know what did it feel like to be there? And just talk us through. Well, first of all, uh, it was uh, 300 people came in from Washington with John Lewis and his delegation. I think over 50 members of Congress came. Wow. And so Hillary was receiving the uh, 
Women's International Award, Civil Rights Award, and she was also inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in in Mm -hmm. Selma. Mm -hmm. And it's because of all the work that she's done around the world for women and for all the work she's done around civil rights. And it was great. I think this was the first weekend that she has been out in such a large crowd and they, it was very receptive, of course, and she just had a good time. She was more relaxed because she didn't have to be on guard about, you know, whose vote she was. was Not running was, for office. Nope. It was right. very relaxed, and she really, really enjoyed it. Well, good. Mm-hmm. Um, and who else was down there this weekend that you saw? And I saw I saw a picture of, that I loved of, of Hillary walking across the bridge um, mm-hmm. with Cory Booker and with some other – with, I think, Mr. Lewis, who was mm-hmm. also there, too – who else was down there? And I guess tell us about the vibe. Was it upbeat? Were people like what? What does it? Feel, what goes on down there on a weekend like this? And and what you know, sort of what well, was know, the mantra? You know, it's a, obviously it's it's a celebration, but it's also a remembrance of what mm-hmm. it was like when John Lewis took that journey with Hosea Williams across the bridge. And, you know, I think one of the themes that came out of this weekend was we still have a long ways to go on voting rights. And Terry Sewell, Congresswoman Terry Sewell, had just reintroduced a voting rights bill before before we came down. So people were extremely ecstatic about that. But, you know, everybody's message was we can't go to sleep. We have to be right. woke. You know, we have to stay vigilant about voting rights. And so I think that was the big mantra this weekend. But, you know, you had... Cory Booker, you mm-hmm. had uh, Sherrod Brown. He was he was quite interesting. He's a delightful person. He and his wife, and I felt like they were a little bit lost in the sea. So <laughs> we stopped helping Hillary and started helping him because she felt like a natural one in the crowd. So we started helping him. We had Senator um, Senator Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. He was there for a few minutes. <clears throat> um, he came in for the breakfast. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And who else was there? Well, Reverend Jackson, of course. course. And, you know, you had all the civil rights leaders, congressional leaders. So it was quite impactful. You had you had the workers. You had the thing I like about it is it actually brings activists from around the country back and they come and they walk across and they do that pilgrimage, too. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, Mignon. For our younger listeners, mm-hmm. I'm wondering you've 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 had a record of success for a long time. You've you've worked in the White House. You've worked. You were the CEO of the mm-hmm. DNC. Um, you know, you've been on senior advisors at a at a, a, on campaigns. You're now a partner at Dewey Square. Mm-hmm. What's the secret to your success? If you were advising a younger person, and I know you do a lot. I know you're a mentor to a lot of folks mm-hmm. around around town and and beyond. What's your advice on how to sort of, you know, make your name and, and grow in, in politics? You know, it's interesting because we did this book tour, as, as you guys know, and we had lots of young people show up at all of these events. And it's always the, the question they always ask is, how do I get involved? What do I do? How can you, how, can you guide me? Can you mentor me? And one of the things that I noticed when I was out there was that really what they want to do is have somebody listen to them. You know, they come from a different era. You know, they they think they get famous by being on Instagram and Twitter and how many followers you have. I think it's some of that, you know, because we have had a lot of leaders emerge as Instagram leaders and right. Twitter leaders. 
but it's also about just plain hard work. And so I've tried to see if I can encourage them to just get out and volunteer, go to some of these campaigns, you know, just take away all the titles. And the good news about the generation that's really activists and really like you know really want to get out here they're not looking for titles they want to know how they can get involved in this country they want to know how they can run for office one day and i think they're willing to just do the hard work they're willing to get back out in the field and i encourage them to do that if that is what they want to do if they want to get involved in just plain old basic politics you got people who want to do comms like two of you i mean we need more mentors in the communication space because that's where i think we're we sometimes lose the battle. I look at how social media is really defining most of our candidates, even right. though even though we believe that, you know, all of these big events that they're doing, but you just peel back the layers of that and you see all the smut, and that's where they learn their information. So we really do need a lot more comms going into these campaigns these days, and a lot of people that want to do that are out in the field, so y'all have to look them up. You hear this, iHeart? You're going to help us get the word out that we need more communications because you are the best. Amen. Next to all the rest of the people that are helping them out. Well, I think you raise a really, I think you raise a really important point, Mignon, because I think with especially some of these younger people who are just getting started, mm -hmm. who I guess are technically millennials, but they're like the lower, you know, they're like right. the, the, the youngest of the youngest millennials. Um, you know, they see these people on, on Instagram and Twitter and we clearly saw, we had, I think we called them um, digital influencers mm -hmm. on the campaign that were very um, effective in terms of delivering Hillary Clinton's message yes. as a candidate out to their uh, their viewers and their followers. Mm -hmm. But it's become even more so now. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of people out there who I think, oh, you know, they think if I'm active on social media, if I, if I get, you know, 500 more followers on my Instagram, mm -hmm. then I'm making a difference. But I'm so happy that you're out there preaching the importance of, you know, hard getting work. Hard, hard work, putting your boots on the ground, mm -hmm. knocking on doors and getting involved at a, a very local level. Yeah. And that's I think that's where it starts, especially for some of the young people that really want to get involved. And some of them are just simply good writers. Some of them are simply good thinkers. But I do think that they lack the the uh, capacity to get involved because they just don't know how. One of the things that I have been preaching to the parties, local and national, mm -hmm. is we got to start inviting people back in. These young right. people do not know how to even get involved in the party because our doors are not open. Mm -hmm. Our doors are not inviting enough. So I am like, go down to your state, your state office, go down to the campaign offices and just get involved. Show up. That's what I did when I was coming through. I just showed up. Hey, I want to volunteer for Harold Washington. Where do I go? We, we're young people at that time. And they gave us a table over in the corner. And that's how we got started. And that's that's that, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> that's exactly what it is, history. So you were down in New Orleans, right, for the Power Rising mm -hmm. Summit too. How was that? It was great. We had about twelve hundred African American women, wow. African American, black, whatever you want to call yourself. Um, and we it really came as a result of the two thousand sixteen election. We felt like the energy in the African-American community was so high, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what is it that we do to keep that energy high? We were disappointed because Hillary did not win. So we went to a retreat with the uh, Congressional Black Caucus women, and they asked us, uh, what is it that they can do? What can we do? And so Leah said, well, if I could wave a magic wand, 
I would I would organize a summit. So of course she said that. Then we came out the room <laughs> and I'm like, Well, who's gonna do the work? Of course it was me and Leah. Of course. <laughs> Course. But it turned out to be, I think, one of the best things we've ever organized because the women show up. We go. We pay our own way. It's not for profit. Right. You know, it's a nonprofit. We just now we're just now putting it into a infrastructure. But mm-hmm. the women show up. We first was going to just deal with politics. Then we decided to deal with culture, technology, health, education, and we had all these big people just showing up. This year we had. Uh, uh, Senator Harris, we had Stacey Abrams, who was a big hit. We had um, 14 members of the Congressional Black Caucus show up. I mean, it's amazing. So, yeah, so I mean, people, and then we had business leaders, and you know, we didn't have a lot of celebrities like we did the, uh, the time before because we were up against the Oscars, so we just decided right. to have an Oscars party nice. after everything <laughs> was over. <laughs> and like, who's the, who is the target audience to, to come? I mean, can somebody just go out and buy a ticket to this, or can mm-hmm. they just register online and show up? Like, how do you actually build a crowd of, of people who come? Honestly, we build it online, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a lot of word of mouth. It mm-hmm. is, you know, the... Uh, the plenaries are open to anyone, male and female, black and white, Hispanic. Sometimes the boys can yes. um, can gain a little bit from yes. an all-women summit. We call you all our allies. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, there are a few faithfuls that come. We have a white guy that shows up every time Aww. and sits through every session that is open to him. And we look at him and say, why are you here? Because I'm an ally. <laughs> he comes faithfully and he's like give me my notice i'll be there in january because we're going to do it in january hopefully in uh, south carolina okay. but okay. you know we have we have um we have all of our allies our allies are our groups like emily's list our mm-hmm. allies are like P- planned parenthood they come they put out tables they recruit i mean so we have a whole expo that you can walk down and we close the doors so that you have your force to walk down that aisle to get information. So you have to go all the way around. Mm-hmm. Very you have to, smart. Yep, we have to, I have to give that to the event planner. She really was genius about that. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times these groups will show up and they can't really get their information out. But the way the hotel was designed, we were able to just cl- close off all the doors and they had to walk <laughs> through the expo. Very good advanced, <laughs> yes. advanced job. Exactly. Advanced job. But it's great issues that, that are discussed and you know, anybody is welcome. You can go to powerrising.org and you you'll see information about the last two and you will probably see in a few short weeks information about what we'll be doing in 220 and that's I mean, in south carolina we hope hope so okay. yeah we hope so um <clears throat> so you just recently wrote a book mm-hmm. uh called uh for colored girls who have considered politics with uh your friends uh, leah daltry donna brazil and yolanda caraway mm-hmm. three other legends in the in the game Tell us about that process of writing the book collaboratively with them. I know I've watched some of your group interviews on mm-hmm. C-SPAN and other places where there were actually passages where I know there were some disagreements that you all had with one another. Um, right. Talked about like the uh, Obama-Clinton uh, dynamic in 2008 and then mm-hmm. some of the things that happened uh, after 2016. Mm-hmm. But one, for our listeners, just maybe summarize or tell us a little bit about the book. And then I'd love to know, we'd love to know sort of how, how you guys went about writing it together. Well, the book is basically about our careers and how we managed to go through politics as friends first, 
and then how we supported each other. But we also thought it would be a um, somewhat of a roadmap for younger people who are willing to get involved. And actually, we've had a lot of men read the book, and they said, well, this is really just not for colored girls. And I think people get confused by the title, Colored Girls, but it really is about what we believe was our value system. And anybody that believes that when they get to the table, their responsibility is to open up the door, then you are a colored girl, or you can be a colored boy, or you can be whatever you want to be, but Mm -hmm. it's a value system. And so we thought we would just, we had all this knowledge, we had worked with all these different people, and we just thought, we thought maybe it would be good to put it on paper. But it actually started because Hollywood was trying to do a series on us. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we got the script, who, the script writer is a brilliant, prolific script writer. But when we got the script, we didn't recognize ourselves. Yeah. Like my character was, uh, I worked in the White House, which was true. Mm-hmm. I was a political director, which was true. Mm-hmm. I was dating a New York Times reporter who was white, which was not true. <laughs> and we were trading secrets. That certainly was not true. Definitely it might happen not true. It might happen today, but it wasn't true then. And so I'm like, mm, that sounds too much like me. And I don't think they could separate our lives out from the actual us. And I think they right. were, it was on the heels of scandal mm-hmm. and everybody was trying to get that little nugget. So we just decided to step back and do the book first. And so if they want to do the likeness of, and it's got all these crazy scenarios, at least people would know, oh, well, that's not them. Yeah, who's writing the screenplay on the book? I don't know. Sold the movie rights yet? No, not yet, not yet. Now now you get to tell your own story on your own terms, and maybe Hollywood can write it in in that way. Um, It's a wonderful book. I hope everybody out there listens to it. Mignon, if people want to order the book or go buy it, what what do they do? They can go to Amazon. They can go to Barnes & Noble. They still have plenty. Mm -hmm. We had a special for Black History Month on the e-book, but that's over now. But Mm -hmm. you can still go to... Go to Amazon or go go to Barnes and Noble. They have plenty. And you were on the View talking about it as well, yes, which was we a were. really. You can also Google the View and find that episode, which was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mignon, as we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, you and I have uh, been on the trenches together um, on several different occasions, and I've always learned so much from you. But especially on this last campaign, um, we were certainly in <laughs> quite the trenches, right. if you want to call it that. <laughs> Um, what continues you to want to be in, involved in public service? Like, what drives you it time and time again? And obviously, you have done things that are not completely in government or in public mm-hmm. service, but public service still is the foundation of what gets you up every morning and, and you know, puts you to bed at night. Mm-hmm. What, can, what, what inspires you to stay involved? You know, I've always thought that being in public service was not just an obligation, but it was a gift in many ways because when you have to serve people, and, you know, I used to tell my staff at the White House all the time, you have to be in the business of knowing how to say yes because we work for the American people. And because you have the power to say no, then, you know, just just remember your phone calls won't be returned, so go out of your way to do it. And I've always gotten some incredible joy out of doing it. I know sometimes you get a lot of pain out of public mm-hmm. service. Right. But it, it has always been, uh, to me, something that I, I like. I like serving people. And so I just, you know, 
although I'm not as deeply in it as I have been over the years, I still like the idea of serving people. I was when I was in Selma this weekend. We, I, I think you might know her. Doris Grinshaw was there, and she's of course. and she's not getting around like she used to, but she looks great. But we were, mm-hmm. she, we were like, okay, you want to be in our package, and she just <laughs> loved it. <laughs> you know, she just loved it, and so you know, it's things like that. You know, it's the people that really do the hard work that you every now and then get a chance to treat them with a sense of dignity and respect. So if I can get that chance, I still do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so many talented folks came off of the 84 and 88 Jackson campaign. And I know you were um, on the 84 campaign, but you were a, you, you had a senior role in the 88 campaign, mm-hmm. I think the field director position. Right. And I know Donna was on that race, a number of other very mm-hmm. senior, very talented folks. Can you talk to us about the, that both of those campaigns? I, you know, I mean, I remember both campaigns well, but what was it about that campaign that produced so many talented folks? And what were some of those? What were some of the memories that you 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 take from them? You know, it's so funny because I was listening to Cory Booker on Sunday say that Reverend Jackson was the first candidate he had voted for. And that was actually the other reason why we decided to write the book was because we felt like people needed to understand that Reverend Jackson had paved an unusual way for African-American talent, Hispanic talent. You know, he had just opened up, he actually introduced us to, in a very high level, the gay and lesbian community. And we felt like it had somehow gotten lost or people didn't really understand how important it was and what he did to change the rules of the party that made it possible for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama to run. Because when he ran, it was winner take all. And when you do winner take all, it just works against a woman or a minority candidate. Right. So we changed the rules, and mm-hmm. you know, lots of young people like myself got involved. I mean, good lord! I mean, I got tortured out there because I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we were like building the plane as we flo- as we were. Were you flying. in Chicago or were you on the road? Where, uh, well, '88, I was on the road. I yeah. was just dispatched every, everywhere from Chicago to Detroit. Well, when we won in Michigan, we all, you know, everybody but Joel Ferguson, who was who had who was the state director. We like woke up and say, well, what does this mean? We had no concept that it had redefined the Democratic race. And we woke up and we, we realized that we were ahead in delegates and that, you know, the establishment said, mm-hmm. oh, my God, they can win. So they went from, OK, Jesse won Michigan to what does Jesse want? And that became the mantra. What does Jesse want? And so we knew what we wanted. We wanted them to treat people of color, farmers, black people, gay and lesbian, women, African-Americans, Latinos. He wanted them to treat them with respect and invite them into the party. And that's what we did. We opened it up. We brought in at large members and it became it actually became a new party as a result of him. And and I'm very fascinated in the delegate process and Mm -hmm. how that process in the Democratic Party has evolved over the years. Can you sort of talk us through what steps you all had to go through to get from a winner-take-all primary mm-hmm. structure, which, by the way, to those of you listening who may not know quite how the democratic process process works, primary process works, it means that traditionally or before these reforms were made, um, if you got, you know, 49% in the state and, every, and somebody else got 46 and somebody else got 5%, you would win the entire state, even mm-hmm. if you didn't win a majority. Whoever gets the most votes, right, would essentially right. win. 
Can you talk us through how you went through those reforms? Because they really did pave the way to a far more democratic process mm-hmm. um, from what we used to have. Yeah, and actually, it was Harold Ickes that helped lead that lead that reform for Reverend Jackson. The legendary Harold Ickes. Harold Ickes, Ron Brown, all of them, because they knew that in order to, what we had learned out there was it didn't matter how much you campaign, if you could not break threshold, or if you couldn't, like you say, get 48, 49%, and then you could end up getting 46% and the other candidate get 49%, you still had no delegates. All that money wasted, all that time wasted. That's right, so uh, they fought. They fought with the party, and that was one of the concessions that came out of out of the rules change. Don Fowler was a part of it. Don Fowler Sr., he was a part of it. and. Those are the type of demands you make. I mean, we just recently went through another overhaul on right. on the delegate process where right now I'm like, for example, I'm an at-large member. Mm-hmm. So I cannot vote on the first ballot now until we have a nominee that has declared or had been has been declared by the party by pledged delegates. Right. Not automatic. Pledge. So that means Congress can't vote on the first ballot. That means people like me can't vote on the first ballot. Seventy-three at large, which is not a lot, because we were we were technically called super delegates, but we're not super delegates. We were considered automatic delegates, and that meant we could vote for anybody we wanted to. Now we can't vote at all on the first ballot. So take for example, Adrian is running. Doug is running. Mignon is running. <laughs> And five other people are running. Does that sound familiar? Minus your name. That's a scary <laughs> prospect. Yes. But keep going. So, okay, Adrian has, she has 900 delegates. Doug has 500 delegates. Mignon has four delegates. And then the other, then the other delegates are all divided up. So technically, you would be considered the nominee, mm-hmm. but if it's not... 1,800 delegates, Mm -hmm. you are not the nominee. So you go straight to the convention. Then you have to barter with people like me, again, who unfairly has been punished because somebody put out that superdelegates changes the complexion of a campaign, and it does not. And let me just go even further. Hillary Clinton won by all pledged delegates. She never won by superdelegates. And so now that you've got 15, 16 candidates, there's a possibility, a large possibility, that we will be trying to figure out who our nominee is at the convention. So, Adrian, you might think you're winning, <laughs> but no such luck, my dear. That is, I, I, think, I think you would be the one coming in with 900 delegates. I'd be the one Just coming in with fair. four, and Doug would be like somewhere in the middle there. So. Right. Five. I think I'd right. five. Um, so you think the reforms this time around were a bit... Yeah, I think we went a little step too far because I also believe even if they took people like me out, I also believe that Congress is our guardrail. I mean, because, you know, you really have to have a guardrail in your own party, I I believe. Right. And making sure that you elect people that reflect the values of your party. Right. And I'm I would imagine that some of the never Trumper Republicans would agree with you on (laughs) that. Exactly. Because they didn't have any guardrails Mm -hmm. against him. Uh, I'm curious. What's uh, you've worked on a bunch of races mm-hmm. in your career. What's your favorite? What's the favorite campaign you've been on? Um, you know that's a good question because I mean, you know, when you work like for a Jackson campaign, we were uh, 
a, ca a campaign that was poor, but we were rich in message. And the, I think the poorer the campaign, the more cohesiveness, because you just you are bound by whatever little bit of resources you, you have. You got nothing to lose. Nothing, and you got a lot of energy. I think Harold Washington's race was very exciting because I was young, dumb, didn't know what I was doing, but we ended up being a really pivotal part of his campaign because we were like young, dumb, but we were getting all the, <laughs> the young people out. So, you know, we were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to swing this race because we started learning the campaign lingo. And so we really did help propel that race. I think when I started working in Hillary's campaigns, and it was very tricky for me because I had worked for President Obama and his Yes We Can pack, and we were both from Chicago. And, you know, it was a big decision because I, but at that time I really wanted to work for a woman, and I really, really thought that, you know, our country had came a little bit further than it had. Psych. <laughs> Goodness. Not so. So, but I enjoyed working in both of the campaigns, but I still feel like we got a long way to go. What was it like when you told Senator Obama that you were going to be endorsing and supporting Secretary Clinton? Well, it wasn't quite as bad when I told Reverend Jackson that I was leaving the Rainbow Coalition to go work for the party. <laughs> I mean, so I felt like I got it a little easy. I mean, you know, I think the I think uh, President Obama is probably a lot more pragmatic, and you know, he he wasn't the type of person to say no. I don't want you to do that, but he was the type of person to say, "Don't hurt me out there." Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, while I was working with her, I was not working against him because that's not you know I didn't want to do that and so you know it, it worked out right mm -hmm. right but I did avoid him for a long time and he <laughs> sent a message by Donna and say tell her to quit avoiding me <laughs> well that was a difficult primary yeah. I was on Hillary Clinton's campaign that time around but I had a lot of friends who were on Barack Obama's campaign and some who were on John yeah. Edwards campaign oh, that as was well. horrible mm -hmm. it was uh there were times where we just didn't didn't speak. I think it, it got really tough. bad for us when we got to South Carolina and mm -hmm. uh, they accused uh, President Clinton of racism and playing the race card. And that was just uh, so far from the truth. And, you know, it was at that moment that Cheryl Mills and I had to make a decision because we really wanted to speak out on it. Mm -hmm. But then we felt like, okay, are we going to go here and speak out, speak against this brother and, you know, make him think that we don't have no sensitivity to our own community? Right. Or are we going to just, you know, are we going to stand up for our former boss? And we decided to just lay low. But I, I actually regret doing that. But I wrote about it in the book, by mm -hmm. the way. If anybody's going to buy the book, it's in the book. Uh, it's a great passage <laughs> buy the in the book. book. Yes. Buy the book, buy the book. <laughs> yes. Um, you are a partner at Dewey Square, mm -hmm. which is one of the top political consulting public affairs firms mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, you're also an African-American female. Mm -hmm. And it's rare to have uh, not only a person of color, but a, wo uh, a, a woman of color in a, p a partner position mm -hmm. at a majority white firm. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, in what, what can the party do to improve the diversity within the consulting class? Mm -hmm. Because I know all of us are very passionate about it on mm -hmm. both, you know, both gender, racial diversity. But if you look at most of the top firms, mm -hmm. uh, Democratic consulting firms, they're not that diverse, particularly at the senior level. So what do you have any thoughts on what we can do to improve that? You know, that is such a good question. And it's such a question that we really wrestle with every year. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, you know, we have to, we have to, 
start now or well we probably should have started two years ago making not even making those demands but having our presence because you you end up with these media firms that are you know and as much as we'd like to believe that the party has changed it's, it's not much as much about the party but even these infrastructures like these consulting firms first we went from polling no, there's no women, no people of color. Right. Then we had a proliferation of women and people of color. Then we went to advertising and media. There were no women or people of color. And now we got a, a smaller portion of them. Now it's data. So, you know, we're always trying to catch up. So you might be able, so I think President Obama, quite frankly, did the best job in terms of integrating people of color consultants into his work. And, I, you know, it's demands at the party. You just got to go right now and say to them, I have a service. I think Tom Perez is actually trying to do a better job in terms of putting out RFPs and bringing in right. people of color. So I think you have a better chance and a better shot at it. But you got to show your services really quick, you know, and you got to force them to get out of their comfort comfort zone mm-hmm. because a lot of times if they don't know the group then you won't get hired right but a lot of times it's the groups that you don't know that are actually communicating with the community so you know i would just say just you know stay in their face right and right talk about them on the radio <laughs> right. well i think there should be some pressure put on these consulting firms oh, yeah. who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars from the party committees absolutely to diversify their senior staff mm-hmm. i mean uh, there were there were very there were a lot of talented uh, women and and people of color on the hillary clinton campaign mm-hmm. in 2016 certainly throughout the uh, obama administration those seem to be the the, the pipeline yeah. for these firms and That's i right. i don't really understand i i work at a a, a firm uh, i'm proud of the diversity that we have mm-hmm. there I'm, I think we could be doing better, but we're proud we of what we can, have. Yeah. We could all could be mm-hmm. doing better. But I look at some of, you know, others around town, and it's just it. They're not these folks are well, non-existent. You know, and I, I, you know, I have to say, if they, if they, if the party is hiring people that lack the diversity, then that's that's not good either. I mean, they should want to hire firms that reflect who the party has to reach. Now, that's not to suggest that. You know, an all-white firm can't be diverse in thinking, and but I mean, we're I mean, right. this is two twenty, this is two nineteen. We got to do better. I mean, and that you would want, I think you would want that talent on your team. You know, even when we go pitch, like we had a pitch last week, and it was on data, mm-hmm. and I said to our guys, you know, just make sure you're because I'm not an expert on data. Make sure your team is diverse when you go out of here, and sure enough, when they walked out that door. They, their team was strong and diverse, mm-hmm. and, but you have to you have to raise it, you have to push it. Right. So, Mignon, one final question mm-hmm. for you. Um, it is 2019. The 2020 presidential campaign has started, um, which is Unfortunately. crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. Unfortunately, I feel like 2016 just ended. I, I know, swear, I think it, we're still hungover. It hasn't closed yet. I no. couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. But with that said. Um, is there anybody who really stands out to you right now as a candidate, um, in particular somebody who you could imagine being on that debate stage with Donald Trump as the Democratic nominee who can take him on and defeat him in 2020? You really going to ask me that? I am. <laughs> and, if, and if the answer is it's too early, maybe that's the answer. 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, it's a little too early, just mm-hmm. based on what I've seen. Mm-hmm. I think we have several that have the potential to do it, you know. But, you know, Doug and Adrian, you guys know how big this stage is. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we cannot take for granted that some of our newbies really understand that. I mean, this is a world stage. It is just, I mean, people around the world are looking to see if we will have the ability to unseat him. And so to me, it's, um, you know, I was looking, I was th- actually, I was, I was thinking about this as uh, I was coming back from Selma. When we, when, we were, when we did 216, you know, it was all the Obama craze. Okay. And I, you know, you gotta, you gotta get the young people, you gotta get this, you gotta, you gotta do that. But it was never about who Hillary was and who she needed to reach and what, what her profile was. So I think that, you know, we probably, ran a campaign that was a cycle behind us. Uh-huh. And now I think we're trying to overcorrect 216 by being the hippest, the coolest, and, you know, getting to all the people, getting to all the people we can get to. But I think America is a lot more sober right now, and they want somebody. The, the one question that I hear all the time is, who can be Trump? Yep. Who can be Trump? And they are looking through that prism. It's very narrow. So when you're standing on a stage, people are probably saying, sizing you up, saying, hmm, I think that that woman can go at him. I think that man can go at him. I think they are looking a little bit more intent at the policies you're offering. So, you know, when you're making these missteps, they, they're calculating that in their mind. And I think eventually, you know, we still have how many more to get in? We have Beto. We have uh, Biden. Yeah, Bi- the bees. Bloomberg, yeah. Beto, Biden. Oh, yeah. from Bull- Montana. That's right. We got the four uh, yeah. bees. Four bees. Yes, and Women's History Month. All of the guys are coming <laughs> in. That is so fantastic. Interesting. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we still have, I mean, I think the field hasn't even leveled out yet. I'd be glad when it does, though, because, who is a lot of work to and do. And you're neutral right now, right? You haven't, yeah. yeah. You know, I... You know, I put my neutral like this. I am a Democrat, and I want to be as helpful as I can to Democrats. So if I receive a call, which I do often, I am going to be helpful to that Democrat because I just don't feel like we're at a point where we can be so neutral that if somebody says or asks you for advice, you can't give that advice. And and I'm just very clear about it. I don't feel like I'm duplicitous. You know, if any one of my friends call me from any of these campaigns and ask me to do anything for them short of just going on a campaign right now, I'm happy to do it. If I can make a phone call for them, I'm going to do it because I think too much is at stake. And then my last question, my my real last question mm-hmm. for you um, is sort of on the same vein of the, of the you know, the, the magic number 216. Mm-hmm. Do you think a state like Ohio is becoming further and further out of reach for Democrat for the Democratic nominee in the presidential? Or do you think that that is a state that along with Michigan, Wisconsin, but really Ohio, um, because we it just seems to me that that state well, they keeps put Minnesota in play now, you know, so the map is changing. Just so the map episodes. is changing. But how do you think that like a state like Ohio is still in play for Democrats? Or do you think that I mean, it's still early, early to tell, I know, but is it a place where perhaps people should start thinking about putting resources in other other places? Well, you know, I think the big criticism we got was we played to 270, and that's a very tight margin. Right. 
you give yourself no room for error. Yeah. And I would say that all of these states are in play until you see that they're not in play in terms of the big Midwestern states for sure. And, you know, everybody is putting a lot of stock into Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. And I would say Ohio. I would keep the doors open to Ohio because we we probably could, if we invest in it and invest in it right, we could get much further than we did in 216. So I, I would say, yes, keep it open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're people, you know, folks remember that we lost Ohio in 2000, we lost in mm-hmm. 2004, and it's one of those states that I think folks thought at that time was gone, and then it took the right candidate mm-hmm. to win it back. And um, I think that uh, uh, there are some people running that I think could put it in play, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I think what's really going to be interesting is some of those emerging states yeah. that um, are coming online. Georgia, mm-hmm. Arizona, mm-hmm. maybe even Texas. That's right. Uh, you know how, and we had, we, you know, we had. We candid- had a Secretary of State in, in, in Arizona just by the good work of I vote, you right, know, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. So that I, I'm really interested to see how those campaign, mm-hmm. you know, how how they actually uh, fare this fare in 2020. Yeah. Um, particularly after our gains in 2018 with Cinema winning the Senate seat and. You know, Stacey Abrams coming so close. But I think you said something very, very key here. It's the candidate sometimes, too. I mean, you know, people vote their interests and they vote for people that they feel is actually talking to them. And so we'll have, and we have enough of them to talk to almost everybody in the country right now. <laughs> yes, we do. It, we, we were, I was joking with somebody earlier today that if um, whoever the Democratic nominee is, they will have a plethora of cabinet people ready to like step into any sort of cabinet position. I know. I could primary. name them all off that's probably going to be in that cabinet. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Mignon, anything else to add on your end? No. Who are your favorites? Well, well, I I am a huge I am a huge uh, fan of Kamala Harris, but I am I'm like look I'm like you I am I am remaining very neutral. I want to see Donald Trump be defeated. I think that there are a number of people, um, either running or who could be running for president, who can beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we will see a lot of talented people come out on the debate stage. We've got twelve debates in the Democratic <laughs> primary, which is pretty crazy to think about. But also, it's going to give millions of Americans a chance to really size up candidates next mm-hmm. to each other and decide who they pick. But I like Kamala. She's running a really smart campaign. Um, I also am, personally am a fan of Amy Klobuchar's. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, well, I want to watch the to, mm. process play out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she took an unnecessary swipe. Me too. Yep. Me who is too. This? Who is, is this Bad Memories? No. Well, no, just, she just this made it recent. clear that she would play. Uh, unlike Hillary Clinton, she would play. She in would play Wisconsin. in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. My my uh, my uh, person was uh, Mitch Landrew, but mm. uh, I don't think he's going to run. Okay. So go forth. Yeah. Well, I had you know I, I'm. <laughs> You'll gonna be, be okay. You'll I'm going to be. Okay. I'm still neutral, but uh, he was he was someone I thought would be really intriguing mm-hmm. as a candidate. Um, you know who I'm enjoying watching, though? I'm really in a, it's almost like a tur- tortoise. Uh, I'm enjoying watching Corey. I swear to God. Because I feel like, you know, it's almost like he's playing a basketball game. You know yeah. how you put your, you don't put your best players on the, in the first quarter. Is this right, Doug? Because, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I probably got this from my brother, you know. Put your best players on the court. Not in the first half, but in the second half, you got it. You got. It. I just feel like he. I feel like he is running a very smart 
and very steady campaign for some reason. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just because I think he's just such a nice person. I want him to run a smart and steady campaign. Plus, I love Deuce, so. Yeah. Yeah, we, we yeah. love a DC who's yeah. campaign manager, one of the best in the mm-hmm. business. But I, I agree with you, Mignon. I mean, he's not trying to... Um, you know, he's not doing multiple television mm-hmm. interviews at this mm-hmm. point. He's not trying to drive the headlines. He's just quietly mm-hmm. in the background, building, methodically building his operation um, and building his support system. So I yeah. think we're gonna. I think you're gonna see him really emerge, yeah. um, especially on that those debate stage. And I like what Kamala's doing. I think she came out smart, hit it right, right out the bat. You know, and because people have to get their name recognition up. You know. And she was able to do that fairly quickly. So now she has time to kind of step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The author of uh, For Colored Girls uh, Who Have Considered Politics, Mignon Moore, strategist at uh, Dewey Square Group, former CEO of the DNC, a legend uh, and a friend of both that of That means ours. I'm old, people. Don't believe it. Don't believe no, it. No, it no, not, <laughs> not at all. You don't day over 35 i like that thank you so much for joining us uh this has been fantastic no thank you thank you feels like old home week talking to my political paws we could talk for three or four more hours thank you so for adrian elrod i'm doug thornell this has been the electables and we'll see you next time